Today's reading is from Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be proud to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Sulai. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. If you're new, glad you're here. My name is uh, Frank. I'm the lead pastor here. Summertime in Arizona. I have been living here a long, long time, and I've noticed over the years that uh, what started in my life as a, as a holiday uh, July 4th, eventually turned into a three-day weekend, then a four-day weekend. It's about a 20-day weekend anymore, I've noticed. Uh, people just sort of leave in the middle of June and say it's the 4th of July, and then we'll see them in August or something. I don't know. Anyway, good to see you all. Uh, we are in Philippians. That's where we're going to be today. won't be jumping around at all. Uh, and what Zulai read was uh, really the first half of the, of the passage we'll look at, and uh, the probably where we'll spend most of our time, 12 through 18, but we're also going to look at 19 through 30, the rest of chapter 2. So just open your Bibles or your apps to Philippians chapter 2, and uh, that's where we'll be for the next 40 minutes. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Lord God, again, we, um, uh, we recognize that your Holy Spirit is already here. Uh, no need to invite your Spirit, but what we do need to do is we need to welcome you. We need to open ourselves up to you. We need to uh, pray that you would fill us, that you would even overwhelm us with your Holy Spirit. Um, and not so that um, we might just feel better, but because we need the Spirit to apply your word to our hearts and our minds so that we have understanding, uh, so that we can know the gospel in a, in a deeper way and that, that we can know you in a deeper way. And so, God, we pray that that would happen, that your spirit would take your word, the word of God, and apply it to the people of God uh, during this time. Help us to do that. Um, let me just be the deliverer of the message, but you are the messenger, and ultimately that's what this is all about. Uh, let us just praise and exalt and lift up Jesus as we do this, and we pray that in his name. Amen. So there are two things we're going to look at today, verses 12 through 18, which we'll look at first, which Zulai read. Uh, Paul teaches about obedience, and it's obedience to the gospel in the wake of his illustration, his perfect illustration about humility. And his illustration, if you were here last week, and remember, his perfect illustration about humility was in fact Jesus, the, the perfectly humble uh, person to ever live. And so he teaches us about obedience in, in the wake of that. So everything's connected. Uh, and then in, in verses 19 through 30, he gives two commendations of two people that he knows quite well, Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
And those people that he's giving commendations about uh, are examples of people who really fit this bill. They're humble, they're unified, they're submitted to the gospel, they're living uh, uh, out a, in a gospel-centered way, and Paul commends them as examples, further examples of this idea of humble obedience in the midst of humility and unity. So we're just going to work our way through uh, this passage, starting with the first two verses that Sulai read, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So each week I've mentioned there's generally going to be this sort of iconic verse. Philippians is filled with them. That verse that everybody kind of has heard about but maybe doesn't necessarily fully understand. And, and here it is. It's in that last clause of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to get to what that means. It's, it's a verse that is well known if, if not necessarily well understood. But he starts in verse 12 with this idea of obedience, obey. I want you to obey, as you always have, not only when I've been around, but even much more, I want you to obey in my absence. And of course, that's always a high call. You've heard it said, I'm sure, uh, in the marketplace, in the world, that character is who you are when nobody is looking. Okay, well, so what Paul is talking about here then is obedience not necessarily as behavior, but as character. If, if obedience is a part of your character, it's not going to matter who's watching. You're going to live a gospel-centered life no matter what. So the way I like to say it is that a truly gospel-centered person really has no need to be micromanaged, okay? So if you're somebody who doesn't like to be micromanaged, um, try to live as a person with character. That might be, that might be one way uh, to get management off your back in, in a sort of practical way, but Paul is now applying it in a spiritual way. He's saying, look, I'm not always going to be around. It's going to be up to you and your relationship with Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit to be able uh, to live in this obedience that results from unity, uh, uh, humility and unity. But then you get to that second clause. What does it mean to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling uh, let me start with the end of the clause first. That, so many people want to focus on that fear and trembling part, and it's important, but it's also, we don't need to spend that much time on it. it, it it's not fear like you're scared and whimpering and in a corner waiting for somebody to strike. It's not like that at all, though it could sound like that. Again, it's this idea of reverence and awe and respect and honor and worship in the presence of somebody who is certainly deserving of it. And that would be God. It's a reminder that God is God and we're not. And so we're going to work out our salvation in, in relationship to and in reverence and awe of him. That's what it's talking about. It's, it's not being frightened. It's, it's honor and respect. Uh, but then to understand what it means to work out your own salvation... This is absolutely sure. You have to look at the next verse to fully understand what that means to work out your own salvation. Paul says, for it is God who works in you. This isn't about you working hard. This isn't about you figuring out how to do it on your own. This isn't about you doing it 
uh, sans God. It's because God is living in you now by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Son. Paul is not teaching here, as some people have misunderstood, Paul is not teaching here that we work for our salvation, but rather we obey, work, and rejoice because we are saved. It's in response to our salvation. In other words, it's a contextual issue again. It's me going crazy about how important context is. You cannot understand verse 12 without verse 13. You have to keep reading before you decide to interpret what God's word says. And we need to remember, here you go, that verse division in there is artificial. Where it says 13, that's artificial. Paul did not write with verse divisions. Verse divisions, uh, he didn't write with a little number, a little numbers every few words. It, verse divisions came 600 years ago, 1,400 years after this letter was originally written. So we need to be aware that those verses can mess up our understanding of context. So here's what we can learn and know from those two verses combined. Paul talks about salvation. It takes him a minute to get there, but he's talking about salvation. Again, this is a key theme. Salvation is a key theme for Paul's life, his ministry, and his letters. I hear this sometimes kind of in the, in the public sphere, in the marketplace. Why are Christians so obsessed with that whole being saved thing? They seem to be obsessed with being saved. Well, here's why. It's because the one doing the saving, Jesus, and the one who writes the most about being saved, Paul, Tell us that this is essential. This is the starting point. You don't live this Christian life without the transformation of being saved, without the gospel in your life. That is the starting point. You have to start there. You can't build up to it. That's where you start, and everything flows from there. And specifically, the way these verses are worded, we can know four things about salvation just from these two verses. And again, that word salvation means deliverance, rescue. Number one, salvation is important. Number two, salvation is not just a momentary event. It's something that we're continuing to work out. You are saved, but you also are continually being saved. Number three, salvation is transformative. It's supposed to do something to us. And number four, the power to save is God's. God is the, salvation is the Lord's, as we learn from Jonah. But I know verse 12 makes it sound like salvation is up to us, that somehow it's our work that saves. No, you got to keep on reading. It is God working in us, and it is for his will and his good pleasure that he does this. This is huge to understand. This was big early in my Christian life 30 years ago when a teacher helped me to understand this. Just so important. We need to remember that God is the initiator and we are the responder. God initiates, we respond, but that's not the way we want to live our faith life, is it? We, we may know that cognitively, we may understand that academically, but really what we want is we want to be the initiators and we want God to respond. And if God doesn't respond and we're pretty sure that what we're initiating is the right thing, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it without God. That's just, and that can become very frustrating and even destructive for us to live that way. I think of Henry Blackaby's work here. This is going back into the 80s now. He wrote a book called Experiencing God. And he talks at length about this. And one of the things that he says is that life would be so much less frustrating if our MO as Christians, our modus operandi, uh, operandi 
would be, as Blackaby says, to figure out where God is working and then go join him. That would be a much better way to do it, but rather what we try to do is we try to figure out what's right and then try to get God to join us. Here you go. Redemption Church, we have nine congregations. Redemption Church has never planted a church in an area that we targeted. We've never done anything like that. We have only planted churches by first discerning where we believe God is working and then by praying and being patient to see if God raises up in our other churches somebody who has a heart for that area and we begin to see God initiating and people responding for that area. And this is why you will never hear from the front of any redemption church that we have some new program titled something like 20 Congregations by 2020. Because the minute you do something like that, that's us initiating and if God wants to come along for the ride, he can if he wants, but we're really on this mission, and it's about us and not about God. So we'll plant our next church when God calls us and equips us and not when we say so. And this principle is true both personally and individually as well as corporately. You know, people say all the time, well, how can I serve? How can I help? What do I do for my part? What will I do for my ministry? And those are excellent questions. I would suggest that you always start the first thing with just try to figure out where God is already working. And then go and join him in that endeavor. And then verses 14 through 17, where we'll spend much of our time. Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or questioning. That word translated questioning, we're going to use disputing. It's a, it's a stronger word, and it's, it's more in line with what he is talking about here. That you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I want to tell you about that word generation real quick. Uh, some of you might say, see, I told you that millennial generation, they're crooked and twisted. That's not what it's talking about. Okay, it's not talking about the iGeners. It might be talking about the boomers. No, it's not talking about the boomers either. It's not talking about a generation like that. This generation that Paul is talking about is the one that started after the resurrection of Jesus and is still going on today. We live in a crooked and, gen and, and twisted generation now and always have and always will until Jesus comes again. It's the world as it is today. That's what he's talking about uh, there. So in the midst of a, of a crooked and genera uh, twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. In other words, even if they decide to execute me now, which I don't think they will, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So there's that theme of joy again. So Paul says in verse 12, to continue in our humble obedience regardless of the circumstances, that word obey is an interesting word. We don't like the word obey already. You know, somebody once said it sounds like pig Latin. It doesn't even sound like a real word, you know. Um, we don't like it, okay, but here you're going to even like it even less. It's a compound Hebrew word that means to listen under. Listen under. It's, it's a word of submission. How many of you get up every morning, the minute that alarm clock goes off, and, and your first thought is, I can't wait to listen under my spouse today. I can't wait to listen under my boss. I can't wait to listen under my neighbor. I can't wait to listen under my parents. I can't wait to listen under my kids. I can't wait to listen. In fact, 
what you're really thinking, although you may not say it out loud, is, I wish more people would just listen under me. They need to listen under me. This is a problem for us. We chafe at that. But if there's any, ever been anyone that we should listen under, it would be God, because he kind of knows everything. Well, verse 14 continues this call from verses 12 and 13 to listen under God. And Paul says that we're to do it without grumbling and disputing. First, because grumbling and disputing are not conducive to humility, obedience, and unity. And second, because in a crooked and twisted world, bent toward grumbling and complaining and arguing, Christians should stand out. We should shine as lights in a dark world. We will demonstrate that in the, do- in the gospel, there is a way that builds up rather than tears down, and we will therefore be blameless. People with critical spirits often end up with troubled reputations and a lot of blame. That's just practically speaking. And in this era, this generation that we lived in, it's crooked and twisted. Those words crooked and twisted mean a world that does not submit to God or take God seriously and attempts to twist God's created order into something it isn't. Even in the midst of that, Paul says no grumbling, no murmuring. Here's another way to to define that word. No low-volume whining. You know any low-volume whiners in your life? Okay. They're never really loud about it, but it's kind of annoying. So here you go. I love this Greek. This is one of my favorite Greek words. There's a lot of favorite Greek words in Philippians. We're going to get to one in chapter 3 as well, where Paul cusses in the middle of a letter to the church. Um, but this word is the word gongusmas. It's, 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 it's known as an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia... <laughs> how many of you know, people know what an onomatopoeia is? Yeah, so, okay. An onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it's describing. Okay, so like a donkey braise. Okay, you see, okay, so this is an onomatopoeia, gongusma. So here you go. I'm going to ask you Arcadians to do something that you rarely or never, ever, ever, ever do. I'm going to ask you to participate in a sermon. This happens all the time at Alhambra Redemption. Never here, though, okay? But I'm going to ask you to participate. So what we're going to do is with using your diaphragm, with great confidence, you're going to repeat over and over and over this word. All together now. Gongusmas, 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 gongusmas. Now listen. Okay, you hear all that? You hear all that? Paul's saying all that grumbling, all that backbiting, all that gossiping, all that noise in the background that's so distractive and destructive, silence. You need to silence it. That's the end of it. That's what he's talking about here. In any organization, backbiting, gossiping, murmuring, it's unhealthy and destructive. And Paul is actually concerned that there's some of that going on at the Church of Philippi. So he tells him to cut it out. And believe it or not, there might even be a few 21st century churches where this gongusma stuff is going on occasionally. Think about this in the midst of this idea of not grumbling. Would you be able to rejoice in God's work if it were being done in a church that you would never attend? Would you be able to rejoice in that? It's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, Pastor and author Erwin McManus says that he has always found it fascinating 
that generally speaking, when a person leaves one church for another, it's not enough for them to just leave. They must also curse the church that they're leaving. And then that gets experienced in two ways. The people in the church that that person is leaving, they hear about how awful they are. And then when that person goes to a new church, they begin to tell their new church about how awful that, that, that last church was. So the new community also hears about it. Which, by the way, just so that you know, in church world, that's kind of a red flag for church leadership. When the first or second Sunday they're there, they're telling you about how awful their last church was. Paul says, get over it, move on. That's what you need to do. And let, let God take care of the problems, real or perceived, that are at that uh, last church. Really, really important. Uh, Luke Simmons says it this way, and it's just so true. It's so true. The critic muscle is a difficult muscle to disconnect. It really is. And then he says, and no more disputing. That word disputing is not about healthy debate. It's not about give or take or legitimate negotiation because those are good things, but rather disputing in this context is competitive arguing over trivial matters for the sake of feeling superior to others, which again, never happens in churches, amen? Okay. This whole thing, I think it was four weeks ago, Pastor David Platt, who's a pretty well-known pastor and an author, um, President Trump attended his church uh, that Sunday, and uh, Pastor David was asked to pray for President Trump. Anybody remember that whole thing? I mean, it was, there was quite the uproar about it. The, the, the disputing that this spawned among Christians was absolutely breathtaking and phenomenal. There, were, there was literally hysterical, hysterical, out-of-control anger by people who call themselves Christians that a pastor would pray for the president of the United States. And I know, it's not just a president, it's Donald Trump. I get that, but there was absolute hysterical anger about this. If, if that produced hysterical anger in you, you need to understand that you have an idol problem. You have a false god problem. Your idol is politics, and you really believe that the way to salvation is through who the next president is going to be, and not through Jesus Christ. That's a theological problem that you need to work out with God and the Holy Spirit there. I will tell you that this is a no-brainer for anyone who reads the Bible, this whole thing. We are commanded several times in Scripture to pray for and honor our leaders. We're commanded to do that. And, and here you go. There is no clause in any of those commands anywhere that says, unless you don't like them. That doesn't exist. It, it exists in one book. It, it, it didn't make it into the Bible. It's the book of second opinions. Perhaps you've read it. It didn't make it in here. Okay? So look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at Romans chapter 13 in the New Testament. And then for crying out loud, the Old Testament. I mean, just the stories of these people who were in horrific situations and yet prayed for their I would use the word generally hated leaders, the people who were oppressing them. They prayed for them, and not only prayed for them, but they served them. Think about Daniel, the first six chapters of Daniel, the way he served the Babylonians, the, the mortal enemy of the Jews, and, and David, uh, Daniel served them and even showed God to them. Many of them actually got an opportunity to see who God was because of the way Daniel was. That's what we're called to do. We're, 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 
we're called to pray for people who are lost, pray for people who are misguided, pray for people who are not gospel-centered. Regardless, that's who we are. That's who we should be. And by the way, just again, personal note, just so you know where I'm coming from. Some of you already know this. I'm, I'm fairly... You could use cynical if you want. I'm, I'm not thrilled about any of our politicians. I think anybody who's had a conversation with me knows that. I mean, I, I, the, the, our politicians, our leaders, our government, I, Republican or Democrat, I, my assessment is that most of them have gone into this for the wrong reasons. They've gone into it for the acquisition of power and not for an opportunity to serve, which is why you should be in politics and in government because you're serving uh, people. Um, I've been described by people at Paradise Valley, students at Paradise Valley Community Church, who, by the way, for some reason, some of them are desperate to figure out where my political affiliations lie. And I've been described with these same words by people from Redemption Arcadia, who also, for some reason, are desperate to figure out where my political affiliations lie. I have been described as politically ambiguous. Yes! <laughs> okay? Because I'm not ambiguous about Jesus. Okay? Now, I may be politically ambiguous. I still pray for our leaders. I prayed for Clinton when he was president. I prayed for Bush when he was president. I prayed for Barack Obama. And I'm praying for Donald Trump. And by the way, don't you think they need prayer? Not just Donald, but all of them? Wouldn't they need prayer? Isn't that something that we could do for them? It just, it, it just, seems, it just seems like when Christians get into these disputes, it makes us look foolish and childish. And, and for those on the outside of the church, who would want to be a part of that? How is that attractive? How is that beautiful? How does that communicate the gospel to people? That we're fighting over whether or not we should pray for somebody. I, I just, that, is, that is a real problem. Well, that's part of the obedience that Paul is talking about in these verses. Now, here you go. It's not that the church shouldn't have spirited debate and discussion, especially on topics that matter and are not clearly delineated in Scripture. But the sort of competitive, destructive backbiting that Paul talks about here does nothing to advance the gospel and makes the church look foolish in the eyes of most others. And when we're willing to shun this grumbling and disputing, and Paul says that when we're able to do that, we're going to shine like lights. Because that's the world. The world is grumbling, complaining, and disputing. We're not that way. That's a dark world. It's going to be easy for us to shine. We're going to make a difference. We'll be noticed for our unique approach and perspective. Christians are to be light bearers, shining our light into the world. But understand, when we start shining our light into a dark world, that light is going to be very glaring to some, and it's going to be attractive and illuminating to others. It just depends. Some people will see you living this life, your light shining in a countercultural way, and they'll respond with conviction, anger, and hostility. Your light will glare at them through no fault of your own. You haven't done anything wrong, and your light will glare, and they will respond badly. Others, however, they will be attracted to your light, your light will illuminate things in their life for which they have been seeking illumination in many other different contexts, and they might actually ask you about it. And then that's an opportunity to invite people into this, because frankly, 
if a person has never been to a church, and understand, we're living in a culture where it is now more common that a 50-year-old, not a 5-year-old, but a 50-year-old has never attended a church than ever before. If you're, if you're talking to somebody who's never been to a church, you have an opportunity to actually invite them in. Because it can be really scary and intimidating to someone who has never been to church. I guarantee you, people drive by churches, they drive by our church. And they may not say it out loud, but they're thinking, what are they doing there? What goes on in there? Are, are they really freaks like all my friends say they are? If I showed up there, do you think they'd let me leave? Would I be able to leave? Okay. Most people i found... If they attend, at least Redemption Church, they attend for the first time, any Redemption congregation, once they've attended, they realize that it's okay, that we're not going to bite, that we're not weird. Well, most of us aren't weird, you know. We're not, we're not. So, here you go. Being a light. Our oldest daughter, Shelby, uh, is living in Houston now, going to graduate school. Uh, She's been there a little over a year now. Um, In May, about four or five weeks ago, she was home for her for a, a nine-day break between her studies. Very nice. But I noticed that um, every couple of days she would leave and go somewhere and then come back. And I, where are you going? I found out she's going to this cult. I, I, I moved to Houston, join a cult. I guess that's the T-shirt now. But anyway, so she, it's like a cult, you know? And, she, and I'm like, well, tell me about it. She said, no, 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 you'd like it, Dad. In fact, why don't you come with me? I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I've seen those places, they're popping up all over the place, by the way. I've seen them. I don't want to go there. I just, no, you've got to go. Just come with me once, just experience it once. You'll see it's, it's really not that bad. I was really freaked out. I didn't want to go, but I decided to go ahead. And last Saturday she was here, I, I went. And, I, and like I said, I've heard of this place. They're, all, they're popping up everywhere. Maybe you've heard of it too. It's called Orange Theory. So anyway, <laughs> she invites me to a session at Orange Theory. I, seriously, I never would have gone into that place. Like, I see people going in and coming out, and it's like, I, it's all shaded. You can't look in and see what's going on. You know, nothing. It's like, what's, something very wrong is going on in there. But now my daughter's going there, and I thought she loved Jesus, okay? So, I, anyway, so she took, here you go. Shelby was my orange theory light, okay? So she took me, and I found out they're not weirdos in orange theory. They're not. They're very nice people. And I found out that in a sense, Orange Theory operates a little bit like a church. Um, You you go to them because they want to help improve your life in some way, and they have a way that they can maybe help improve your life a little. They're working to change lives. It's it's very transformative to go to Orange Theory. They want you in community. Also, they really believe in Orange Theory uh, intense relationships, just like gospel-centered relationships. They really believe in that. They have key doctrines. I don't know if you've, known, if you've gone, you know, they have the colors, they have the heart rates, they have the calories, they have the splat numbers, they have the, their key doctrines. And then, here you go, they, they, they also expect you at least once a month to give them money. So it's just like a church. It, it, it is, okay? Okay, here's what you need to understand. 33 years ago, that was me in church. I'd never been in church. I'm part of that generation that grew up not going to church at all. And then I met Jackie, and she became my light. She was different than any Christian I had ever met. She never grumbled or complained. And when I insulted her faith, even though I didn't know anything about it, when I mocked her faith, 
She didn't grumble or complain. She hung in there with me. She was a light. She was different. I was dark. And, and all she needed was just a little bit of light to make a difference because I was so dark. She became my light, and eventually she invited me. And that's what God used to get me into North Phoenix Baptist Church. And that's where God saved me because Jesus was told Jackie to be a light. We need to be lights. That's what Paul is saying here. I think people who would attend here for the first time, even if they didn't come back, they would see something that was different here anyway. So be someone's light. This is Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 where he writes, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Paul writes that if we can do this, if we can obey, we can stop grumbling and we can shine his lights. This will be like his discipling and his shepherding is going to be a beautiful drink offering at the end of his life. A, a drink offering, usually wine, was, was a common ancient symbol of a joyful, glorious sacrifice. And Paul's saying, that's my life because you're shining as lights. So now, a bit of a change. It's still related, but it's a bit of a change. Paul commends these two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to the church in Philippi. Let me read it, and we'll finish with this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. He's saying, I don't think they're going to execute me. I don't think my time has, been, has come for me to be poured out. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. We're not exactly sure why, but he nearly died, and Paul decided to mention it. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, should Epaphroditus die. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of this humble obedience, and unity that he's been talking about since verse 1 of chapter 2. So just a word about Paul here. Paul has this kind of reputation both inside the church and outside of the church that he's sort of this angry, crusty, curmudgeonly old guy. Okay, And passages like this, and there are many others in the New Testament, remind us that that's not who Paul is. Paul is a deeply passionate compassionate and caring person. And it is the gospel that has made him that way. 
Now, it's true, we know from the book of Acts and from other historical documents that he was an absolute brute before he met Jesus. He had issues, he needed therapy, and the Boston Bruins were looking to pick him up in the draft. Now, that's not to say that you can't be a Christian and play in the NHL. In fact, there are many Christians in the NHL, but I digress. In a letter written in part to correct and instruct this church, Paul takes time out to commend these two people to the church. Of the two, we know the most about Timothy. Paul picked up Timothy on Paul's second major missionary journey as detailed in the book of Acts. You can read all about it. And the two of them have been pretty much um, partners in ministry ever since. In other places in the New Testament, as he does here, Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved son. Now, he's not his DNA son. He's his son in the faith. And, and I'll just tell you that that kind of connection with people, that the kinship we have in Christ and in the gospel can, in fact, be stronger than some DNA connections that we have with people. I've, I've discovered that certainly to be true. And Timothy was with Paul as he wrote this letter, probably going to help deliver the letter to Philippi. A couple years later, after this happened, around 64, uh, Paul writes to Timothy while he is the pastor at the church in Ephesus. Eventually, Paul became the, I'm sorry, Timothy became the pastor at Paul's other favorite church, Ephesus. And so he wrote him a couple of letters, and those are also in the New Testament. They're very cleverly titled 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They're not hard to find. And, and then we don't, know, we don't know nearly as much about Epaphroditus. Pretty much all we know is in this paragraph here. But just look at the language that Paul uses around Epaphroditus and about Epaphroditus. Brother, fellow, minister, longing, honor. Paul commends these two people. But there's something else that Paul is doing here in verses 19 through 30. It's something that um, Tom Schrader used to do really, really well one of our founding pastors. And, and it's something that I try to do, and, and I'm glad to do it um, because I think it's helpful and important. Paul is connecting people. He's connecting people. Um, and, and by the way, here you go. He's not matchmaking, okay? So just put that to bed for now, okay? This is not e-harmony in first century Philippi. He's connecting people because he's thinking, Here's this, per oh, and, and here's this group of people. They, they really need to find each other. They could benefit each other. Now, this is not necessarily a purpose of the church that this happens, but it is a beautiful consequence of being a part of the body. You can't help for it to happen when you're a committed part of a body for those kinds of things to start happening. It's part of the koinonia that we talked about last week, this partnership, this fellowship, this community that we talked about last week, and it's very, very helpful. You could describe it as the networks of the church. Again, not the purpose of the church. We're, we're not going to be calling people or emailing people and saying we're compiling a, a contact book for everybody to have a network of everybody in the church. We're not going to do that. This has to be done through relationship. It is a natural consequence, though, of being in community and, and having that happen through relationship. But there's another side to this. You need to know, if you're new to this, you need to know this connecting, this networking, it doesn't just happen, and it cannot and will not happen in an instant. It just doesn't work that way. To expect instant community, instant connection, and instant network from a church or any other community of people is not only unrealistic, but I would say it's selfish, unproductive, and unhealthy. This is something that comes as a result of investment. 
comes as a result of time, energy, service, relationship, and commitment. It's not that the church doesn't stand ready to respond to situations, but the response is best done in relationship and community. Churches do have resources. We do. And when I say churches have resources, what I'm talking about is social capital. Churches have social capital. But those resources are naturally accessible in the context of time, relationship, unity, and commitment. The problem is, is that we live in a culture that values apathy until crisis. We value apathy until there is a crisis. Our mentality is, why waste time with relationships when I can just come in when I'm, when I'm in need? Well, here's why. Because life, relationship, and crisis really don't work that way. They don't work that, it doesn't work that way in the marketplace. It doesn't really work that way in the church. Tim Mon, who's our lead pastor at our Gilbert congregation, writes this. Your faith community should not be treated as a product that sits on the shelf until you think you need it you will find no benefit or joy in doing that. I'm part of a um, very large, I think, amazing and wonderful marketplace networking and leads exchange association. It's been around for 60 years. I've been a part of it for 32 years, and I love it. Um, we meet uh, once a week on Thursday mornings from 7 until 8.30, we eat breakfast together, we have conversations, we network, we talk, we exchange leads, we talk about what's going on in our, in our world, and then uh, every week a couple of people will get up and, and they'll get to spend 10 or 15 minutes just talking about their business and their life and, and how the association can help them and how they believe that they can help the association. It's, it's terrific. Like I said, I've been, I've been part of it for 32 years. I'm a past president. I've served on the membership committee uh, several times. I will tell you, it always, 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 always blows my mind when a new person goes through the trouble of the application process, the whole membership process, joins the association, and then attends half the meetings, doesn't ever visit anybody else in the association, doesn't answer emails or phone calls in a timely uh, uh, fashion, never arrives early for the meetings. I always arrive 10 or 15 minutes early because that's when you can really get to know people and have longer conversations with them. I'm there very early even. And when they do come to meetings, what they do is they walk right in, they go right to the buffet, they grab their breakfast, they sit down at a table, they eat, they rarely engage in conversation. And then after six months, they leave and they complain as they're going out, I didn't get anything out of that association. Well, of course you didn't. You, you're, you might even be like the same person who says, I don't have any friends. I don't know why I don't have any friends. Schrader used to talk about this all the time. I'm talking a lot about Schrader, I know. He preaches the best sermons. That's generally what I do is I just recycle his stuff and give it to you. But at any rate, Schrader used to talk about this. He, he would have people come into him and say, I'm, I'm having trouble making friends. I don't know how to make friends. How can I find friends? Where can I find friends? First of all, don't be so needy. But second of all... Okay, second of all, here's what he would always tell them. He would say, okay, what you need to do is you need to sit down and make a list of all the qualities that you would like in a, in a friend. What, what are those things? Empathy, um, somebody who initiates, uh, honesty, loyalty, um, passion, all, all of those things. Make a list of all of those things, and then here you go. Go and be that person to someone else. Don't 
wait for others to come to you. Go and be that person that you want others to be to that person. Now, in the church, we can point to how this is this whole idea of networking, of connecting, is at the core of these Christian values of agape and koinonia that we talked about last week. The unconditional, committed, compassionate, selfless love, and this idea that you got to roll up your relational sleeves. you got to put something in if you expect to get anything out. You need to partner. You need to serve. You need to invest. Here you go. Unity, community, partnership, and discipleship is never found in the grand, it's always found in the grind, in the trenches. That's where you're going to find that stuff. It's probably not too often that during a worship service in a Christian church, you're going to hear a quote from the movie Seven. Probably doesn't happen that often. Most of you are so young, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I can't necessarily recommend the movie. It's horrifically graphic, but it's also incredibly theological. I mean, just unbelievably theological. And there, believe it or not, there's some pretty deep truths in there. And, and towards uh, the middle of the movie, the two detectives, played by Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, so uh, Detective Mills and Detective Somerset, they've had a particularly tough day trying to track down this serial killer. And they're in a bar after the day sharing a, a pitcher of beer. And the subject comes up of why is the world so messed up? And both of them have a completely different perspective on why the world is, is so messed up. And they're having this back and forth conversation trying to convince each other. And it's um, Morgan Freeman's character towards the end of that conversation who says this in the midst of that. He says, I agree. I agree. I sympathize completely. Apathy is a solution. It's easier to lose yourself in drugs than it is to cope with life. It's easier to steal what you want than it is to earn it. It's easier to beat a child than to raise it. Love costs. It takes effort and work. That's gospel truth right there. That's gospel truth. They've got it right. This is a very theologically astute movie, but I can't recommend it. But if you do watch it and you want to have a cup of coffee about it, I'd be glad to do that. But think about this. What, 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 what Somerset is talking about there is agape and koinonia. That's what he's talking about right there in the middle of a very dark movie. So this life that we're called to, understand, you heard Stephen mention it during the All of Life interview. It's countercultural. So get used to, to it feeling strange and get used to other people thinking that you are different, but that's the beauty of the gospel. Even, even though our sin has separated us from God, Jesus reconciles us to God through his life, death, and resurrection. That is a beautiful light that shines, and that's a light that's going to glare, and it's a light that's going to attract and illuminate. But in any case, it is a light that is always true. So let's pray together. Lord God, again, we just thank you for this letter that Paul has written to the church at Philippi. Uh, we thank you for the spirit who filled him, and who wrote these words through him. We thank you for the light that Paul was and is to us. We thank you for his commitment to, uh, to his sacrifice, to his loyalty, to his courage. And God, that's a life that ultimately we would really like. We'd like a life that is described not by our resume, but rather what's going to be said at our eulogy, all those good things. 
That's what we're looking for, and that's what Paul has here and what he's calling us to. So help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit who fills us, by the power of your resurrected Son. We, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.